0: Inside COVID-19, from Business
1: News. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron from Biz News. In this episode, we hear about what driving patterns tell us about the impact of COVID-19 on the South African economy. Discovery ensures Head of Technical Marketing and Vitality Drive Engagement, Precious Nduli speaks to BizNews founder Alec Hogg about the effects of the national lockdown on behaviour and how this evolved as the country began to reopen. And as South African experts explore why death rates may not be as high in the country as elsewhere, an international expert speaks to BizNews about T-cells, which may account for higher immunity in township communities. Immunologist from San Diego, Dr. Daniela Weiskopf of the Jolly Institute for Immunology speaks to Linda van Tilburg about whether immunity is more prevalent in poorer, more crowded communities, and why this might be the case. First, the Inside COVID-19 headlines. Inside COVID-19
0: from Business.
1: Just under 15,500 people are reported as having died of COVID-19 in South Africa. About 33% of the 650,000 cases have been reported in Gauteng, while KwaZulu-Natal and the Western Cape report about 17% of cases each. Global coronavirus cases surpassed 29 million, as India, the epicentre of the pandemic, reported more than 90,000 cases for a fifth straight day. Israel's cabinet backed a second national lockdown, In the UK, gatherings have been restricted as new cases climb at a pace not seen since May. UK bar operator J.D. Witherspoon's shares dropped after the company said many customers continue to steer clear of pubs. The City of London has begun a pilot programme that rates the coronavirus safety measures put in place by pubs, restaurants, cafes and shops. Businesses that pass the risk assessment, which includes a site visit to assess social distancing measures tracing procedures and cleanliness will receive a sticker that they can display at their premises. There will not be enough COVID-19 vaccines available for everyone in the world until the end of 2024 at the earliest. That's the warning from the chief of the world's largest vaccine maker, who was quoted in an interview with the Financial Times. Adar Poonawalla, chief executive officer of the Serum Institute of India, which has a partnership to produce AstraZeneca's shot said in the report that drug companies weren't increasing production capacity quickly enough to vaccinate the global population in less time. Bloomberg says this forecast comes as others, from Donald Trump to Pfizer's CEO, have said that a vaccine will be ready as early as this year, though manufacturing enough shots and getting them to all corners of the globe will take far longer. Governments have scrambled to make deals securing supplies, raising concerns that poorer developing nations will be last in line for administering shots, says Bloomberg. UK researchers will start testing an antibody cocktail developed by Regeneron Pharmaceuticals in a key trial of possible COVID-19 treatments. Bloomberg reports that the drug will be given to hospitalised patients in the recovery trial and assessed for all-cause mortality against those receiving the usual standard of care. Regeneron and the University of Oxford are running the trial. The researchers will also look at the length of hospital stay and need for ventilation. At least 2,000 people are expected to receive the cocktail. While most children who get COVID-19 develop little more than a mild illness, several hundred have ended up in hospital intensive care units with alarming symptoms that begin appearing weeks after the initial infection. Ritu Banerjee, Associate Professor of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Vanderbilt University, says this new condition progresses rapidly and can strike multiple organs and systems, including the heart, lungs, eyes, skin, and gastrointestinal system. This condition is known as multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children. Just under 800 cases have been reported in the U.S., of which about 16 children have died. For more on that, do go to biznews.com. Science News reports that the virus that causes the illness SARS-CoV-2 gains its foothold by infecting certain nasal cells, a growing number of studies suggest. As a result of this infection, the nose has emerged as a key battleground in the war against COVID-19. Slowing or stopping that nasal infection might ultimately be powerful enough to change the course of the pandemic, some scientists suspect. Science News says that so far no such therapies exist, but people who study the nose and its contents bring fresh perspectives about the early stages of COVID-19 infections, Scientists are developing and testing ways to prevent the virus from settling into prime nasal real estate. These include a nose spray that smothers and inactivates a key viral protein, disinfectants that are commonly used before sinus surgeries, and even diluted baby shampoo misted up the nose. Andrew Lane, a rhinology specialist at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, says that for most people noses don't usually spark a lot of interest, but now it's the center of people's attention. A Chinese pharmaceutical company has injected hundreds of thousands of people with experimental COVID-19 vaccines. This is as its Western counterparts warn against administering mass vaccinations before rigorous scientific studies are complete. Bloomberg says that China National Biotech, which is a subsidiary of state-owned Sinopharm, has given two experimental vaccine candidates to hundreds of thousands of people under an emergency use condition approved by Beijing in July. Separately, Chinese drugmaker Sinovac Biotech has inoculated around 3,000 of its employees and their family members, including the firm's chief executive. Next, BizNews founder Alec Hogg speaks to Precious in Thule, Discovery Insures Head of Technical Marketing and Vitality Drive Engagement.
2: it's been very interesting to track economic indicators of an economy that is hopefully going to recover faster than the gloomy expectations that people have had. One of these indicators could well be how much we are driving. And Precious and Dooley is Discovery Insures Head of Technical Marketing and the Vitality Drive Engagement Program and joins us now. Uh, Precious, you guys have done a lot of work into tracking how much – The behavior of drivers has changed over the last few months, starting with the lockdown, then level 5, 4, 3, 2, and where we are now. First of all, why did you decide to do this in the first place? What is the benefit of being able to track it?
3: Thank you, Alec, and thank you for the opportunity. So as you know, we have our Vitality Drive program, which rewards our clients for driving well. And we do this by measuring how they drive through our telematics technology. So we measure various factors, things like acceleration, speeding, what time you drive as driving at night is more dangerous, and whether you use your cell phone whilst driving. And we do all of this in order to reward you so that if you are rewarded, with rewards such as up to 50% back on your fuel spend, you can actually reduce your risk. So there's a direct link to insurance. If you drive better, you're a better risk from an insurance perspective, and therefore we would like to incentivize. So it, it really speaks to the full model that you are aware of from an overall discovery group perspective, and we do the same on the drive side. So in any case, we regularly measure our clients' driving behavior. With the advent of COVID, with COVID and people working from home, obviously there's a reduction in terms of how people are driving. So we decided to then track this on a daily basis in terms of just to give us an indication of what is happening from an economy level. So we saw that in level five... There was a reduction of over 87% reduction in terms of the normal pre-COVID mileage that we are used to. And we've seen as, as the different levels of lockdown have eased, we've seen an increase in terms of how people are driving, where we now back, we're still not at pre-COVID levels, but it's certainly greater than 50%, greater than the 50% level of pre-COVID. And so we do this, obviously there's a direct impact also in terms of the rewards that we give our clients. So if people are driving less, Our reward is based on fuel, so we can't give them that fuel reward, but we've also adjusted our rewards to be able to give them a discount or a cashback based on mileage-driven. So there's a product Mm -hmm. imperative, but also I think there's a greater, just an indication. And what we've seen also is that as the opening up, We've actually, because we have both business and individual clients as well, we've seen there's been a greater level of driving on our business insurance client side than the individual client side, which is also a positive reflection of the opening up of the economy as our business clients also go back to activity, which I think is an encouraging indication if you just think about the context of South Africa and the context of our economy. So we thought that was really an, an interesting insight is that there's been an increase bigger than on the individual visual side from our business insurance clients in terms of them getting back
2: the point that uh, you make is the point that you make about the cash back on fuel now being replaced by lower kilometers has the has the one outweighed the other in other words as people now learn that they can do a lot of their work from home are they able to benefit from this via uh, driving less and paying less on the insurance So that's what
3: we try to do. We try to actually sort of answer to both. So we haven't replaced the fuel cashback discount, but depending on your level of driving. So if you drive anywhere under 500 kilometers, you can get between 15 and 25 percent back for mileage driven. But also if you do drive, you you can still get your fuel cashback. So it hasn't. What we found is that most people are actually on a combination of both, And then there are people who are on the extreme ends. So if you are a typical uh, essential worker, you do probably be on the extreme end, you only get your fuel cash back because you're driving high mileages. But those people who are still within 500 kilometers can get a combination of both because you are perhaps still spending on fuel, not at your normal pre-COVID levels, but you also benefit from this cash back discount. What about
2: accidents? Have you seen a decline in those?
3: Yes, definitely. Obviously, there is a link between spending time on the road as well as a reduction in accidents. And I think that's across the industry. There's certainly been a a reduction in in vehicle accidents.
2: Just to also have a look at the behavior of the individual type of discovery clients. Now, we know that highly engaged members would be diamond or gold members and perhaps less engaged and, and less inclined to change their behavior would be further down the list. Has there been differences in the way that these groups have reacted to lockdown and the various levels?
3: That's a great question, Alec. That was actually a very interesting insight from us. So we, always, uh, we already know that diamond and gold clients are the better risks because obviously they're gold and diamond because they drive well, which means they're, they're a better risk from an insurance perspective in terms of they have fewer and less severe accidents. What's been interesting is that they've also been the most compliant from a lockdown perspective, so they reduce their mileage the most, up to 89% reduction in pre-COVID levels at level five. And we've seen that even though with the opening up of the levels, they're still at a lower scale if you compare them to, to say, the blue and bronze, and bronze drivers, which is quite interesting, which shows that not only are they just more conscientious drivers, they're actually just generally more responsible.
2: They're also more connected in understanding how they can get their Uh, money back i suppose more more mindful exactly (laughs) Um,
3: yeah i mean our engaged clients are more mindful what about
2: the western cape for instance that's been ahead of the curve as far as the other provinces are concerned have you picked up anything interesting in the the way that the western cape drivers have been reacting given they had a, a a peak in the COVID 19 infections long before the rest of the country
3: That's also an interesting one. What we've actually picked up is that if you compare the increase in mileage driven between level four and level three, the Western Cape had a 70% increase in mileage driven. Now the lowest The next sort of highest increase was about 55% in the free state or KZN. Comparatively, Gauteng had a 46% increase between level four and level three. So you see that even though the peak was around the Western Cape, they actually also had a much higher increase in terms of activity or mileage driven between levels 4 and level 3. So that's an indication that people were out and about, much more than
2: sort of the other provinces. So what what conclusions can we draw about the state of the economy from this? It's difficult, I guess, because a lot of people are still working from home, because now, as mentioned earlier, they've learnt that they can. But is there any hope that we can draw from this that Perhaps the economy hasn't completely collapsed and we might be moving towards uh, the same kind of levels that we had pre-COVID.
3: It's difficult to, to do an absolute conclusion, obviously, because as you say, people are working from home. And even when you work from home, it, uh, we don't know in terms of, you know, uh, how much level of business you're getting, but there are positive indications that the activity has increased and continues to increase, but we're certainly not at the pre-COVID level. And, and obviously that's ex- expected because not all industries are open, but we continue to track this quite closely, hoping that at least from an economy perspective, obviously Obviously balancing out all the health concerns and taking all the necessary precautions as we should, that activity continues to rise, particularly from an activity, from a business activity perspective. But individuals who can stay at home, we definitely encourage them to still stay at home. And that's why we're rewarding our clients for driving less as well.
2: How far, for instance, is Gauteng away from the pre-COVID level?
3: I think we are now at around 60% of pre-COVID
2: that's not so bad, if you think about it, that a lot of people will still be working from home, so the wheels of the economy are certainly turning again.
3: Yes, definitely.
1: Next, could previous exposure to the cold virus explain South Africa's COVID-19 death rate? Linda Van Tilburg speaks to immunologist Dr. Daniela Weisskopf from the Jolly Institute for Immunology in San Diego, about whether township residents are more immune to the COVID 19 virus because they have been exposed to other similar viruses.
0: Inside COVID 19, Trumper's News.
4: South Africa is at the tail end of the first wave of COVID-19 infections, with a death rate that is surprisingly low when compared to many Western nations. The country's top virologist, Professor Shabir Mahdi from the Witwatersrand University, described it as an enigma. He is one of the scientists who have been scratching their heads on what the low death rate could be attributed to and are exploring whether there are conditions that may work in favour of African countries and its populations. There is an immunologist from San Diego, Dr. Daniela Weiskopf, from the Jolor Institute for Immunology, who has discovered that some individuals have T-cells – they are cellular defences – that target COVID-19, even though this group has never had this novel coronavirus. She told busnews about her work and said she is continuing research with laboratories all over the world to find out what it means – The research will also include looking at whether this immunity is more prevalent in poorer, crowded communities.
0: When we started studying the the T-cell response, which is one arm of the immune response to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, we have found early on that uh, in control samples that we know have never been exposed to the virus because they are in contact. They have been collected between 2015 and 2018. That we saw responses against SARS-CoV-2 peptides. That was the first observation we had. But back then, we did not know where this is coming from. Like, what is this response? Is this something that is real? Is this something that's induced by any other viruses? So that was back then an observation. And very quickly, labs around the world have reported the same phenomenon. So a group in Germany, a group in Singapore, a group in Italy, a group in Rotterdam, they all started reporting that they see responses in their control groups so to say so we have thought that t-cells can react can recognize SARS-CoV-2 peptides so basically their t-cells can recognize something that they have never seen
4: so, so they must have had some exposure to some form of a SARS virus is that your conclusion
0: well, so that back then, that was observation, as I mentioned, and very quickly labs around the world reported the same. What was not known back then was like where this is coming from and is this really from the immune memory? So as you might know, um, the immune system, a hallmark of the adaptive immune system, that it can form memory against uh, uh, things it has seen before. So that was something that was not known. Like where does he coming from, and is it truly coming from the memory of the immune system? So we went ahead and addressed just this, and the closest um, hypothesis was, of course, this is related from exposure to other coronaviruses these people have seen before. And there is, in total, seven coronaviruses. But many of the ones that induce more disease have not been seen by many people, right? SARS-CoV-1 has only been seen by 8,000 people around the world. MERS has been in only one area of the world. And then SARS-CoV-2 now is spreading. But there's four other coronaviruses. Human coronaviruses are typically responsible for common colds, So a lot less severe. And these are spreading widely in all areas around the globe. So we were interested if these might be responsible for the clustering responses we see. We looked into this and we actually made peptides. Peptides are the small fragment of the virus that T cell can recognize. T cell cannot recognize the large uh, virus, small of it. And then we could actually demonstrate that these cells that we see in the box donors are really from the immune memory and are partially induced by the human coronaviruses. So that was like, the second part of the puzzle, if you want to say, what we don't know yet, what is still a speculation is what does it mean? Is this helping people or is this hurting people or it does not matter at all? So and this is right now where nobody has a definitive answer yet, but it's definitely something that us and other groups uh, look into. So basically, if I go back, so we seen for activity and in unexplored donors, We have mapped it to human coronavirus exposure. What? The third part of the chain, if you wish, is now what does it mean? That's uh, something that needs to be carefully addressed. You can imagine you need to have large prospective studies to address this, because we've shown that uh, 50% of our population had this cross-reactive immune response, but other shown have like maybe only 20%. So if you enroll a thousand people and then only 500 have this first response. And then from these only a certain amount of donors get infected. So that's why I'm saying this just illustrates how this is like um, a laborious effort to like you know address this now. So,
4: so the 50 percent you're talking about was that in the United States?
0: Yes, we are located in San Diego, so Southern California, basically.
4: Scientists were thinking South Africa might be hit particularly hard because of added risk factors. But if you look at the figures of the 7th of September, in South Africa, there were 639,362 cases. And the death at that date was 15,000, even if it's underreported. Even if it's double that, it's still comparatively low. Look at the United Kingdom, 352,456 cases with 41,643 deaths, a much higher fatality rate. So could it be that some of the community in South Africa have been exposed to some SARS virus or is this a cold virus?
0: Right. Right. So that's definitely an interesting question, and um, and we do not know at this point why certain areas get hit harder than others. Uh, one example we worked early with is, for example, Italy. You remember Northern Italy was hit very hard, while Southern Italy was doing much better, right? So we don't know we, which has comparable health systems and, and everything. So what we don't know right now, and we are actually actively looking into this. So we are trying to study the, the pre-existing immune response In the communities around the world to see if there is a difference. So we're working with, you know, people from India. We're working with people from Italy. We're working with people from, um, of course, the US. We we actually also collaborators in Africa, in Uganda. So we do try to address this around the world to just see what did the immune response look like before the SARS-CoV-2 hit. But then we need to be careful because, like, you cannot conclude that just because you see it, that this has the effect that we were thinking. But it's definitely a a question that needs to be addressed That should be addressed. Like, what does the immune response look like?
4: It also opens an interesting question about poverty, because poverty was a factor that actually exacerbated how people were hit by COVID-19. But this would prove almost the opposite. Italy, that you just mentioned, is actually a fantastic example because the South is quite poor. The Napoli area, and it was not hard hit. It was the wealthy North that was hard hit. The theory of some scientists in South Africa, Professor Shabir Mahdi and Professor Salim Karim, was maybe because these people could not isolate. Maybe the fact that they were living so close together could be a factor that some form of SARS spread easier and they might have had immunity. Or do you think it's too far-fetched to jump to that conclusion?
0: As I said, I think right now, I think we don't have solid data to like, you know, there's no evidence. It's still in hypothesis. It's a good hypothesis and it needs to be addressed, but I don't think we have answers yet. So, but there's definitely something that I know is looked at. It is also looked by our lab. So
4: you could say, what about Brazil?
0: Yeah. So maybe uh, let me point out. So our lab is very supportive in accelerating COVID research. So maybe if I explain a little bit how we study the T-cells. So if I take a step back, T-cells are a lot more difficult to study than antibodies because antibodies are not alive they're proteins. T-cells, you need to isolate from the blood, store, carefully store. If you do all of that, then you can actually pull them out years later and study them. And that's what we have been doing. Another thing is that T cells only recognize small fragments of the virus. And another added complication is like the population is so different, right? So T cells need recognize small fragments of the virus that are presented on something that is called human leukocyte antigens. And that is different. Every person has a different one, right? That's what makes it so complicated to getting transplants, right? Because it needs to match. So in order to work around this, we have developed something that we call megapools, which is basically a pool with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these small fragments so we get good population coverage and they can work almost everywhere without knowing what your population has been exposed and why i said we are very open to um, accelerating research we have been sharing these reactions by now with like almost 90 labs around the world also in uh, african labs we basically cover all six continents the only lab we haven't found was antarctica so <laughs> So that is to help because, like, we we want people to have the tools to actually be able to study this.
4: One thing about the COVID-19 era, scientists like you, everything is really accelerated at a massive pace, isn't it?
0: Yes, I think it is amazing to see like how the scientific community came together. And it's just really, like, you know, trying to accelerate this. Everybody has the same questions, right? And, And we all need to know answers to, like, you know, questions like this. And that works much better if you work together. So, so
4: what's next for you?
0: Yeah, as I mentioned, so we are definitely looking into how did the, the pre-existing immunity look like in different uh, populations. We have collaborators in Brazil, in uh, Africa, in uh, Europe, in um, uh, Asia. So we are, we are sending either our peptide pools there or they um, send uh, uh, samples. And we're trying to establish how did it look in a certain different geographical regions before. Another thing we are also very interested in is like, how does it look in healthcare workers? You know, the very close contact is that they have a very different uh, profile. So, so that is definitely an active area of, of research in our lab. And the other thing we are really interested in is, so we are establishing all of these parameters of the immune response, but what nobody knows because only time can tell is like, how long is, does it last, right? How long do you have the effect immune response? So that's another ongoing.
4: This is Linda van Tolberg for BIRS News.
0: Inside COVID-19 from Biz News.
1: And that brings your Inside COVID-19 podcast to a close. Until next time.